Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, here with my good friend and co-host, Christian Ubius. And Christian, how's your mind? Was it blown? Did you have to collect it into a bucket and reform it? We just watched The Usual Suspects, after all, so I gotta check in. How are you? Oh, I mean, I had to jog five miles today. So if you're talking about that, my body is currently in a bucket. My mind is holding on in there, you know? My my mind's still kind of broken, but... Uh, we're man, working on it it's a shame that we always record this podcast on a treadmill unfortunately for you <laughs> yes we did just watch the usual suspects as we kick off our newest blend of the month here in march 2021 theme chosen by christian of unreliable narrators but movies curated by me And so I got to offer up The Usual Suspects for us, and Christian had not seen it, which is why I was checking in on the state of your mind. This movie has one of the most famous plot twists of all time. Would you concur, Christian, having not seen this movie? Okay, the the plot twist was satisfying. I, the plot twist was satisfying. It it, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. Can't lie. That's, that's what I'm going to give it. It's a pretty good from Christian. <laughs> Nothing like a pretty good from Christian. <laughs> what every filmmaker strives for. <laughs> I, I guess I meant to say, unfortunately, this is the second time I was watching it, but the first time I saw it, I already knew the twist because I clicked in, in you know, one wrong article online in my teenage years, and I accidentally spoiled it for myself in my, in my foolhardiness. But I wanted to say... Did you, were you aware that this movie had a big plot twist? Were you aware that it's considered one of the most famous Hollywood plot twists of all time? Were you aware of kind of the aura around The Usual Suspects? I was not. But sadly, given the nature of this blend, I knew that it had an unreliable narrator. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's like this blend, I go into it and there's a movie I haven't seen. I know that. I'm expecting a twist in here somewhere. The way that that twist was handled, I think was pretty good. I didn't, I think part of it could have been guessed. Part of it I was able, I had a feeling about. But the execution, big fan of. All right. Well, I am looking forward to diving in more, learning more of your thoughts on this movie, obviously a pretty famous one, and it's always fun to talk about these big hits with each other because, of course, we have arguments about them sometimes, or sometimes we just have a love fest, and that's always fun. But, as is the new tradition here, wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about how we got here, how we got to the usual suspects, the air circling around it, and kind of the impact that it had. So, for the details, the usual suspects... Released in 1995, directed by Brian Singer, written by Christopher McQuarrie, two names who are much more famous now than they were in 1995. Brian Singer, unfortunately, one of two notable people involved with this movie who has gone on to now live in infamy because of some allegations against him. Uh, the other... I was going like, to say, like, you chose a movie where we can't... <laughs> That's problematic because two of the people involved are problematic. And because the character one is portraying is V creepy when we look at it in the light of who he is. Yes. It's unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. Um, So obviously the other person we're talking about is Kevin Spacey. 
the again blind actor one of probably the best actors in hollywood for a period of time who again had his career derailed once allegations against him came to light in terms of advances he made on minors and people on the sets of things that he worked on so very unfortunate that that to the best of my knowledge that is true very unfortunate that that happened uh but they are two of the most important figures in making this movie Brian Singer uh, had just made a movie called Public Access, which was his big breakout hit made with mostly non-professional actors on a shoestring budget, and it got him a lot of acclaim, and that was also written with Christopher McQuarrie, and so they're trying to bring their next project to light, and they're just struggling to get the financing, even though they had this indie success, festival success, and public access, and so... Eventually, they were able to wrangle up some financing, especially as Kevin Spacey gets involved and starts recruiting other actors to the project because he knows it's going to be a hit. Let's also, okay, let's take a second, though. We are going to get more into some of the background of this film, but let's also talk about what it means to be an unreliable narrator. That's a good point. This is our new blend, after all. Yes. And also, kind of the weirdness of making a blend with that as its theme an unreliable narrator is normally the person within a film whose voiceover you hear or who is retelling the story that is being presented to you in a series of flashbacks or who is putting forth information about the story and yet is either telling a half truth he is or she is we can talk about examples of female unreliable narrators, so there aren't too many of them in film. Withholding information or the complete thing is a lie. So we don't know which aspect of the narrative we can actually cling to. Uh, Scott, what is your experience with unreliable narrators? I know you've seen movies <laughs> that have this trope included. Are you generally a fan? Does it depend for you? And what do you think going into this month? It definitely depends. This being a trope, naturally, it's been used before. I think of, what is that Edgar Allan Poe short story? The Telltale Heart. The Telltale Heart, which is the one they used to teach you about unreliable narrators in 10th grade, at least where I come from. (laughs) Um, So this being a trope that has been used before it's it's one that when done well and when executed right it naturally is mind-blowing where you realize at the end of the story that what you've been told isn't necessarily true or in fact is completely false and that's what makes the telltale heart a great piece of short fiction and that is part of what makes the usual suspects so successful even now even as you like myself know the twist coming back for the second time so in terms of how familiar I am with unreliable narrators, I don't think I have a, a annotated list in my head of movies I've watched and books I've read that made use of the trope, but it's it's a trope that is just common in American fiction where we'll even play with, oh, maybe they are unreliable. Oh, no, they were trustworthy the whole time. Or maybe the unreliable narrator, they're just a side character, and the main character has to determine if they're telling the truth or not. So... It's, it's used quite often, I would say. And that's why it's fun to take a look at some of the more famous examples here on the show. So let's now kind of go into the plot of the movie. Yeah, why don't you take the plot and I'll take the characters. Sure, sure, sure. So 
Uh, we mentioned Kevin Spacey. He plays Roger, a.k.a. Verbal Kent, who's a con man with a limp and a crippled hand, who is relaying, in one timeline, relaying the story of this violent explosion on a boat that involved many, many deaths, uh, allegedly around this big sale of cocaine. And he is one of the he's the only survivor from his crew of criminals hired to disrupt this sale. And in the other timeline, we're seeing verbal and the other criminals first meeting in a police lineup for a crime that one of them committed. And then as they stick together as a crew, pulling a string of jobs leading up to the boat and the cocaine sale. And so verbal is relaying the information to a police detective in flashback. And in terms of the in terms of the characters involved, we do have kind of at the helm Stephen Baldwin, Gabriel Byrne, Benicio del Toro, Kevin Polak, and Kevin Spacey. Five actors playing the usual suspects: Michael McManus, Dean Keaton, Fred Fenster, Todd Hockney, and Roger Verbal Kint, respectively. And the relationships between them. It's funny because looking back, I have no clue what their actual relationships are. (laughs) Based on the ending, you can't really tell. All you can tell is that each one of these characters, in one way or another, is deeply disturbed. These are individuals written to portray kind of the, the darkness of society at times, and also a fight for survival aesthetic. It's... it's weird. We're not really they're not written for us to care about them i guess maybe and i mean maybe gabriel burns keaton is kind of has some redeeming qualities but no they're scum and they're being portrayed as scum so even going on that it's interesting to see what would this narrative unreliably even look at it's part of crime movies, watching gangs of criminals trying to pull jobs. Obviously, most of us watching aren't criminals ourselves, and we're not trying to follow in their footsteps, but we do come to like them, whether it's because Stephen Baldwin is and Benicio Del Toro are ridiculous as McManus and Fenster, or Spacey is unnerving and creepy as Verbal, or Gabriel Byrne is the career criminal who just can't quit. We find little pieces to attach to with crime movies where sometimes they'll give you a guy who's just trying to get out one last job and that's why you care about him. But often when it's these unrepentant criminals, it's just fun to go along for the ride and get wrapped up in the narrative where you don't necessarily have to care about them so deeply because you know that they're bad dudes and you're not trying to be like them. But obviously you have to write and create good characters in your performance. And I think The Usual Suspects does a a fairly solid job of that. Now, The Usual Suspects also, when it premiered, it premiered out of competition at the 95 Cannes Film Festival. For those of you who don't know, the Cannes Film Festival is one of the most important film festivals in in the entire world. Uh, It won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Kevin Spacey won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. And it has since been deemed to have one of the greatest screenplays of all time. It was made on a budget of $6 million and earned $34.4 million. It's It's weird. It's like got very... It, it feels like a cult film, but it's kind of bigger than a cult film and also smaller in the sense that it made more success 
at the time than a cult film would do and is still thought of it fondly but not thought of incredibly fondly i think part of the problem there is that the usual suspects conversation definitely decreased over the past five years as some of the allegations came to light against brian singer and kevin spacey again the director and the oscar-winning actor involved with the project and i can even think back I, i watched this for the first time in high school i think maybe early college and as i said i spoiled it for myself online but it felt like a movie that was talked about a lot more. And unfortunately, again, it, because of some sordid reasons, has decreased in our national conversation. I guess not national conversation, that's the wrong phrase, but just in a movie that is talked about in cinephile film-watching circles. And it's probably pretty widely seen when you consider those Oscar wins, that twist. So it's famous for people who like movies, but also famous for you know, the Christopher Nolan trying to figure out puzzle box, twisty movies, those kind of people too, r slash movies for all your editors out there. It was an enjoyable movie for different subsets of the film fandom. And unfortunately it just was derailed by the behavior of some of the people involved. And as we move forward, we will be trying to separate art from artist, but we will also be acknowledging at times you can't do that. This is one of two kevin spacey movies that came out this year where he's playing the creepy guy the other one being seven and looking back it it does kind of sour your mind to think about uh what could have been happening at that time uh with that being said though scott are you ready to go into some fun facts oh i sure am what is your first fun fact for us christian you're okay my, hey, you brought it my, up. I'm going to let you go first. Sure. I mean, my first fun fact is weird that, well, I, I kind of respect it. McQuarrie thought about the title and the poster image for the movie before he even wrote the movie. I think that's kind of cool because it's from a it's a, taken from a line in Casablanca. And McQuarrie just thought, you know, that would, that'd be a pretty good movie title. Uh, and <laughs> from there... He was like, yeah, and maybe they could have this poster image. So I guess the story will just kind of come from that. And I'm like, you know what, writer? Respect. Like, <laughs> I, I I, mean, I sometimes have just images in my mind before I start a screenplay. And I'm like, that image? That image would go great in a movie. What's the movie about? No effing idea. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> Inspiration comes from all places, Christian. The, a starting point can come from anywhere. Something that I loved learning about this movie is Benicio Del Toro made up the ridiculous accent that Fenster has because he realized that his character, spoiler alert here, if you haven't watched it yet for some reason, but he realized when reading the script that his character was the first to die, and so he wanted to make him memorable. And rather than playing a straight, hard-nosed mean criminal he gave him this absurd affectation with his voice so now we will always remember fenster because he's the guy who has the weird garbled vocal patterns okay al pacino turned down the role of the cop to play a cop in heat that to me is so interesting because if we were to recast this film with al pacino as the cop First of all, I think it would have been much more of an Al Pacino-centric film. And I'm I'm not going to say whether that's good or bad, 
but that would be interesting because the cops are very much a background noise in this film. And so to have Al Pacino, who has played many cops in his career, he's played cops and gangsters and everything in between. There's not much in between, if you know what I'm getting at. But to to have him there and have that presence there would have kind of rewritten the film for me. So that's just kind of cool. Yeah, Chaz Palminteri plays Detective Kuyan, who's the guy interrogating Verbal the whole time. And it came out at a pretty high moment in his career as well. But he is not an actor who has lived on in the same way that he's really important to us as 25 and 24 year old film podcasters god rest our souls 23 you're 23 20 i turn i i I turn 24 in less than a month okay just divulging our personal information on this public podcast but (laughs) whatever my birthday is on facebook but it is interesting to think about this with pacino in it but i totally agree that if he was in it this becomes more of a pacino movie and maybe the legacy is different than if it's purely just the Kevin Spacey coming out party, uh, usual suspects, and Seven also were. I have just one more fun fact, which is that the filmmaker saw this movie as a companion to The Wizard of Oz. They were like, New York is Kansas and L.A. is Oz, where all of the weird things happen, which is why they included one line that says, is he the man or the man behind the curtain? <laughs> And, I mean, is is The Wizard of Oz an unreliable narrator movie? Because, I mean, sure. <laughs> Let's go for it. And the last thing I'll say, one of my favorite pieces of behind-the-scenes info about this movie. Naturally, the reason, one of the reasons it was such a success at the box office is because they had a great marketing campaign. And they really built up the question, who is Kaiser Soze? Who is the criminal underlord that they're trying to uncover the identity of throughout the movie both the criminals in the past trying to figure out who it is and then the cops in the present and that was how they marketed the movie in the trailers spacey was given that speech he gives about the devil's greatest trick is convincing the world that he didn't exist and they're constantly asking who soze is and brian singer and maybe christopher mccrory as well but brian singer basically managed to convince each of the actors that they were Kaiser Soze, they didn't know the ending <laughs> and they must have filmed different takes or they filmed with Spacey and Palminteri in secrecy or something because when they all gathered to watch the final cut of the movie, Gabriel Byrne got so pissed that he wasn't <laughs> Kaiser Soze. They actually stormed off and they had to go get him back and calm him down because <laughs> he was so mad that it didn't, center on him at the end the big plot twist wasn't that he was kaiser Soze. hey man this movie's all about me <laughs> I, I am kaiser Soze. I <laughs> and at the end of the episode it's revealed oh my so there is a lot more fun behind the scenes information to find out about this movie these kinds of things with a great stacked cast of actors and a small budget there's always fun information that comes out especially when it becomes a success and they talk about the movie in later interviews and things like that so do check out more behind the scenes and fun facts related things to the usual suspects because there's a lot but now christian now we have to get to our review Naturally, I'm coming to it for the second time, but you are coming to it for the first time. And as we were talking about a lot of the 
enjoyment you'll have with the usual suspects hinges on your take on the plot twist. And I'm glad that you you shared earlier that it worked for you. So I want to shift gears as we open up this conversation. We'll talk about more, you know, the unreli- the unreliable narrator of it all, the performances, the tone, etc. But you're a writer, Christian. You mentioned that this is considered one of the greatest American screenplays of all time. So just to open up our conversation here, the writing is so, so crucial to this movie, both in terms of its structure and setting up these characters who are unlikable, but you kind of start rooting for and trying to continually play with the question of who is Kaiser Soze. So Christian, what was your take on the screenplay? Was it worthy of an Oscar, let alone was it worthy of being called one of the greatest screenplays of all time? The screenplay is clever. The screenplay makes sense. It works together. I don't know who else was nominated this year for best screenplay. I can look it up. In fact, I will be looking it up as we continue this conversation. I'm already on it. (laughs) No, but I, I think that it's... I think that the screenplay is good. And when I look at the others, Toy Story, Nixon, Mighty Aphrodite, Braveheart, those were the other four films nominated for Best Original Screenplay this year. Okay. I am a... I think the screenplay is clever, but the way I saw the screenplay unfold left something to be desired for me. Interesting. It it, it did, because... Uh, Okay, I've seen Braveheart and I've seen Toy Story. I haven't seen Nixon or Mighty Aphrodite. Okay, there's something about writing that this that Christopher McQuarrie knows how to write plot. But I think I needed someone who knew a little bit more of how to write characters. Is is any of that making sense to you? It does make sense to me. I I agree that the the plot and the storytelling of this movie is pretty ironclad. And there's more than enough reason to return to this movie because the storytelling is so satisfying and you still get wrapped up in the multiple timelines, trying to keep up with how fast everything is moving, following along with these speeches that the characters are throwing at each other. There are a couple great speeches here, but I'm curious as to why all of the characters didn't work for you. And Sometimes I get on your case about these things. I think we've disagreed a lot in the past when you don't care about characters or, you know, you don't like certain characters. People like Indiana Jones, where I'm like, how do you not care about Indiana Jones? But I I sort of see what you're saying uh, with the five usual suspects here, where I am more interested in some of them than in others. And so I do want to hear more of your thoughts on that. Okay, so what I mean by I wanted someone who could write more characters, I think that this is a combo of screenplay, directing, and performance, obviously, where I needed I needed them to get brought out a little bit more to be more immersed in this narrative. Is it safe to say, Scott, that that we can talk spoilers? Yeah, so we're talking about the usual suspects for Unreliable Narrators Month. So if you have not seen this movie, you're not aware of the plot twist, then lordy, please pause this episode. Get out. Leave. Leave and come back in an hour 
in 46 minutes or however long it takes you to watch the usual suspects maybe i'll allot you a bathroom break so an hour and 49 minutes but yes christian full spoilers from here on out go for it at the end we discover that nothing happened like that nothing that we were told is true well no some of it's probably true there's still a big explosion at the boat there's a big explosion at the boat and the five were chosen Outside of those two things, everything else can be thrown into question. However, when we don't know that and we're presented with this narrative, I don't see too many... The story is more fixated on what these characters have done than who these characters are. And that, you know, you can take it or leave it. However, you know how the cop kept trying to portray Keaton as the mastermind and how um kevin spacey's character kept trying to portray keaton as his friend those were two human uh i don't something that made me care about keaton those two things had they been true would have led me to think about these suspects and this narrative in a different light keaton's girlfriend led me to think about him in a different light but we don't get enough of that humanization. We don't get enough of that. There are things that these characters can go for, and they are not just gang members. They are not just thieves. They are not just criminals. So it felt more that I was watching the trick unfold, the narrative unfold, than I was invested in the narrative and therefore further shocked when the narrative did not occur. Interesting. (laughs) And that's all I have to say about that. Just kidding. I do think it's interesting because this movie is called The Usual Suspects, and those guys are rounded up because they are The Usual Suspects. Keaton, the disgraced cop. Verbal, the small-time operator conning people. McManus, the wannabe gangster wannabe tony montana fenster his his literal partner in crime and hockney kevin pollock love kevin pollock in this movie hockney kevin pollock is so good in this movie (laughs) operating out of his garage who i love the note uh there's a a tiny tiny twist in the middle of this movie that i always forget about and it's that hockney is the one who pulled the job that they are all brought in for at the beginning of the movie (laughs) and they find this out when Kaiser Soze's associate comes and gives them their the ultimatum to do this job or they die. And I realize they turn and look at him and he just kind of shrugs. <laughs> like a confession, which I love. Pollock is great in this movie. But these guys are the usual suspects. They are just criminals. And with the the writing, I guess, in particular, they're not the deepest, richest characters. But I think the performances do bring out more than what the, the writing performances offered. were pretty good yes Stephen Baldwin I, I want to bring up Stephen Baldwin because he's the least successful person from this group of actors <laughs> he is forever known as a Baldwin brother he's in Alex shadow but he again was having a moment for himself in the 90s and this is probably one of the the high points if not the highest point of his career Stephen Baldwin as McManus comes out firing guns blazing with his line reading of the the line the person that the with the stolen truck said in the lineup <laughs> so good how however 
these performances, and again, Kevin Polak. All right, look, we've discussed Kevin Polak before. We've discussed him in A Few Good Men, and Sam you're Weinberg. a big fan of him on Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. He's so he good on Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So good on Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. That That's no, I I will not, I still haven't seen season three of Maisel. I still, I, I know, I need to, I will. Get on that. However, not enough time is spent on them. This is one of those films where I actually think we would have benefited from longer scenes, from a an ex, a bit of an extended version of it, for me to round them out and their chemistry with each other. And the only reason I care about chemistry here, sometimes I don't necess, I don't think a character needs it, but the reason I think that it was important to have here and it's lacking is because the narrative and the story that Verbal is trying to put forth is that he was kind of inducted into this group, that Gabriel Burns Keaton cared about him as a friend, that there was distress and internal fighting with the group, that they didn't know how to continue, that Keaton had a girlfriend he wanted to go back to, that uh, Kevin Polak had a, a absolutely no care about anything. I needed more. I needed more from that aspect of the writing to flesh them out. And they're pretty well written in the fact that they're each so distinct from each other. But for Verbal to be crying and to say, no, Keaton was my friend, Keaton was my friend, and for John to say, he wasn't, he is actually Kaiser Soze, like, that wasn't an impactful scene for me. I wasn't on anyone's side, I was just looking at them thinking, sure, <laughs> I, I, I don't know who's right, because I haven't been given enough to actually make a decision for myself. I think that's part of the intended effect and maybe you're supposed to pity verbal because he's been duped by keaton or at least we think but that also wasn't how i came away from that scene and i was more admiring of the acting especially as paul Monteberry really digs into kuyan trying to drive home that point and as spacey really tries to sell the crocodile tears is alligator tears i always say things wrong in this podcast it's crocodile. I'm tears, from isn't Florida. It? People can't tell the difference, but there is a difference. I guess I just don't know if that's the intended point. Is for us to really feel deeply for verbal because he is still the small-time operator. And I think the point of the Usual Suspects is trying to figure out who is Kaiser Soze. And what I enjoy about that scene so much is those fake tears. Is verbal realizing that he's going to get away with this and realizing that all he has to do is just sell Kuyan's overconfidence. And it's all part of the game that he's playing. It's all part of this, this acting, this performance. And I don't think we're supposed to have some deep, emotionally resonant connection with verbal in that moment. Maybe it's different for me because it's hard to separate watching this on a repeat viewing from the original time watching it, not knowing that Verbal was Kaiser Soze, even if I unfortunately did know. But that's that's my take. And 
it seems like for you though you didn't love the characters and the character writing in this aspect that there are still a lot there's still a lot that worked for you in this movie is that correct yes there there's there's a bit that worked for me uh um the ending in and of itself the twist was pretty fantastic do we want to talk about the twist now or do we want to save the twist for later we can talk about the twist now we can wrap up kind of talking about the story and then there there are a few other things i was hoping to touch on but the twist one of one of my favorite shots in a movie not necessarily because of its brilliant construction or painterly composition but watching verbal leave the police station with the limp that he's had the whole movie and watching that limp slowly transition into a normal upright walk and seeing him flex the hand that he's held crippled the whole movie realizing oh my gosh he's the guy that is a a very satisfying way to reveal that especially as we had the moment with kuyan earlier where he's recognizing all of the things on the wall behind him that verbal was using as inspiration for names or places it's it's a brilliant plot twist one that's still satisfying after you know it i think and is also handled well cinematically it's not just characters talking to each other and saying well luke i am your father it's it's using the camera and the production design and the props and the acting and the writing all together which i think makes it even more satisfying than if we were just delivered the information so i'm glad that you at least like the twist even if you didn't love all of the, the acting around it or the characters i should say but that's also where i completely agree with you the twist was not i did not love the twist because we find out it is roger it that's i think that more than one person could have maybe piece that together maybe guessed it out or maybe said like i don't buy the uh weak routine that he is putting forth the thing that is that got me about the twist was that shot it was the camera moving from under the mug where it said kobayashi to the uh one piece of a newspaper that said skokie illinois to the one individual who matched the description of someone he had spoken of how that legitimately took every single aspect every single aspect of the narrative and it wasn't just how much are you withholding how much are you putting forth literally probably none of that is true probably nothing that we've seen in this film is true the only thing that could be true is or that is true i guess because we have more views of it is that this boat exploded and outside of this boat exploding and roger free hand easily walking out of this police station we know nothing else other than he is as close to the devil as you can think of the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist one of the <laughs> greatest pseudo-intellectual 90s movie lines (laughs) and also just an insightful bit of spiritual commentary there if you are of a similar persuasion to christian and myself (laughs) something else that i love about the twist is like you're saying 
it just throws the whole movie into question and you wonder how much of that story actually happened and i think they give us hints of it as kuyan is telling his guess that keaton is kaiser soze and we see these moments of keaton bullying or belittling verbal where previously they were them more acting as equals and after you have the realization that verbal is kaiser soze you then start to wonder well (laughs) these guys obviously met in a police lineup but was verbal masterminding it the whole time did he did he know or did he just use these guys to get what he wanted which was the witness that knew he was kaiser soze did they really pull off these jobs was there ever there i mean there wasn't ever a red foot kobayashi's real name isn't kobayashi and that's what i love about it is that you realize that it's kind of all just it's nothing it's vapor and i i that's what i love about the twist too it's not just that this guy is kaiser soze but because of the device of the unreliable narrator it changes our perception of the whole movie of the whole story it's it's handled so effectively and that's part of why the usual suspects is still such a such an important movie that is talked about to a lesser degree but still talked about today okay and that concluding our talks on the writing anything else you want to talk about scott i did want to ask your thoughts on the cinematography and the camera work because i found myself noticing it a lot more than i expected to because this movie is is so known for its writing so known for its plot twist so known for the kevin spacey performance i was picking up on some of the camera work throughout the movie a lot of uses of close-ups really drawing you into how trapped these guys are in this situation a lot of similar subtle movements slowly pushing in on them kind of giving the idea that the walls are closing in around them and some creative once you know the twist some creativity and how they stage the scenes and where they put the characters in relation to each other how they use kevin spacey so want to throw a quick shout out to the cinematographer here which is newton thomas seigel siegel i should know that but christian any thoughts on the camera work it's i have i had recently seen seven i saw seven a week and a half ago now if we're talking about cinematography where we put the camera and how the camera is moving uh it's very almost obvious uh no obvious is the wrong word it's very flashy it's kind of flashy. You are always knowing and the camera makes you acknowledge when it's moving so that you can kind of pick up on the crime and on the deaths as, as often as possible. This is a very, very, uh, gory is the wrong word, violent. This is a very violent film in in many different instances. Not the most violent, but it, it wants you to focus on that, like, this is scum. <laughs> what we're watching right now is scum. In terms of the graininess, because there was a bit of graininess to this film, the color scheme that's also part of a cinematographer's job, I don't know what it was, but Seven is very similar. There's this mutedness, like bleakness, almost black and white, as though they want to reference old detective movies. And I, I appreciated how those two were working in tandem. I, I think the cinematography was pretty fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it, when you think about aspects of movie making, it's all part of setting the scene, setting the tone, creating the environment. And 
Seven and The Usual Suspects are two different movies, despite their obvious connections in 1995 crime movies where Kevin Spacey is the secret bad guy all along. <laughs> Spoiler for Seven, sorry. But similar... He, he, okay, in Seven, he doesn't... No, no, no. It's not a secret that he's a bad guy in Seven. Right. right he right. comes out and is like, hey, hey, it's me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so all that to say, it is part about creating this environment and setting the tone here and so that graininess is just part of creating a crime movie and on wikipedia this is considered a neo-noir even and so if you like noir whether you're thinking of the classic stuff from the 40s and the 50s or some of the newer editions neo-noir even neon noir if you think about drive or something like that this would definitely be up your alley uh, lastly christian just wanted to ask your thoughts on, we mentioned it briefly, but the performances in general. Uh, again, the usual suspects are Stephen Baldwin, Benicio Del Toro, Kevin Pollack, Gabriel Byrne, and Kevin Spacey. Spacey, obviously the one who ran away with this movie. He got the Oscar. It vaulted him to a whole new level of fame. So he's very good in this movie, despite everything that has happened since. I think it's still fair to say that. But I, I, I disagree with you. I don't oh. think that Spacey's that great in this film. The hot take. It arrived right at the buzzer. The last conversation topic. Because, and this is the thing, Spacey is the one individual trying to portray himself as like a decent human being at, at, at aspects of this. The entire shtick is that he is portraying himself as a disabled individual. As someone who can't really make his way. As someone who should gain immunity because he's not a threat to society. And I didn't buy that for a second. And again, maybe this is me knowing who Spacey turned out to me that turned out to be that is coloring this perception. I, I always feel like he's hiding something. And I think for this film to have been more effective, I should not have known that he is hiding something or should not have felt that. And I feel that. I feel that he is is not genuine, that he is out there to get someone or something. The, on, and again, I said this before, the performance I liked the most was Kevin Polak's performance, probably followed by Stephen Baldwin's, because they make absolutely no they're not they're not at all trying to say that they are better than what they are they say they don't care about anything they are there for the job they are there for the money they're gonna act as though there is no light inside of them anytime someone was trying to be a good person i didn't buy it and maybe i should have gotten maybe that's where my issue with the writing came in I think Gabriel Byrne did kind of a decent job, but even the cops, like these aren't really, these aren't nice cops. They're, they're more just let me do my duty and I don't really care who you are or what you're up to. So yeah, I, that's, that's kind of where I'm at with these performances. Yeah. The last two things I've seen Gabriel Byrne in are this movie and Cool World, which is a absolute travesty of a movie so <laughs> he is bad in cool world and i'm not a huge fan of his <laughs> not a huge fan of his in this movie either partially just because i i don't know i just don't he's not the best version of the career criminal 
who can't quit. There's been that's been done better before. I, I don't fault the character necessarily. I, I just didn't love Gabriel Byrne in this movie. So Gabriel Byrne hive assemble to come for me, I suppose. Totally with you on Stephen Baldwin. <laughs> it's I found myself thinking, man, what if this part was played by, you know, what if like Brad Pitt was the Stephen Baldwin part? Or what if like Clooney somehow, that's not his persona at all, but like what if a star was that part? But it makes the movie worse. It's kind of the Al Pacino argument. And Brad Pitt actually is nominated for Best Actor in a Supporting Role, lost to Spacey this year for 12 Monkeys. Um, but I just think that if a, a bigger actor is in that part, it's a worse movie. And Stephen Baldwin, this maybe is his biggest role, maybe his, his biggest movie, but he brings something to it, whether it's just his trying to be the crazy criminal and going way overboard, that totally works. And he doesn't distract from the rest of the crew. And was, I'm with you in being a fan Clooney? of his performance. Was Clooney a star at this point, though? He was a TV star. Well, yeah. I mean, was he a movie star? I uh, ER was huge. It's something that we don't understand because we were born at the time that it was happening. But ER was a phenomenon. So he was quite important to the acting and entertainment world at that point. We'll have to look and see what movies he was in around this time. But Because I could see Clooney in this role. I'm not saying it would be better. I really like Stephen Baldwin's performance, but that's interesting. George Clooney. I love me some George Clooney. I, I think he's too suave for McManus. McManus is a little bit unhinged, and Clooney can't really pull off unhinged, to the best of my knowledge. I guess I haven't seen a movie where he's tried. But around this— Oh, you know what would be interesting? Ben Affleck. There you go. Oh, oh actually, now that you mention it, I, I, I'm open to it. I'm open to it. <laughs> Clooney's movie career, he had been in a bunch of smaller things. It kind of kicks off in 1996 when he's in From Dusk Till Dawn. Uh, with Quentin Tarantino, directed by Robert Rodriguez. So, who knows? But I, I do like Stephen Baldwin in this. Uh, he's not the biggest Baldwin brother, but he's good in this movie. Benicio Del Toro, with his ridiculous voice, definitely an indelible role for him, out of nothing. And Kevin Pollack, the, the, the 2000s did you dirty, Kevin Pollack. I'm glad that you're back with us in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. You're the man. I the hot take that Spacey's not good in this movie doesn't sit well with me, but I'm not going to push it too hard. <laughs> I think it's still a very good performance. I and he's he's part of a, a huge and important plot twist in terms of movie making, and it feels like a lot of movies kind of chase after this. It's not the first movie to have a plot twist, but like that would be a stupid thing to say. But there are a lot of movies in the wake of The Usual Suspects, especially in the '90s, that feel like they're going for these these huge plot twists and he's he is a key part of bringing that facet to movie making again so i'm a fan even though i'm not a fan of him in real life um christian any final thoughts on the usual suspects not really no although uh it was voted as having the 35th best screenplay of all time by the writers guild of america that that doesn't sit the best with me. I, I, I think you maybe also don't like crime stuff as much as some do. Because in terms of crime movies, this is up there, especially in terms of the writing. But who knows? One day we'll we'll walk through that list together, and, and we'll make arguments. <laughs> and I sure. <laughs> Christopher McQuarrie, though, as uh, let's end this by giving him some love. He has gone on to be a filmmaker in his own right, making a lot of movies with Tom Cruise. He and Tom Cruise are buddies, and they've made 
Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, and Fallout, which are both incredible. Fallout especially, and now they're working on more Mission Impossible movies. He also wrote Edge of Tomorrow, Jack Reacher, Valkyrie, literally just a bunch of Tom Cruise movies. The Mummy. The Mummy. Not not his shining moment. <laughs> but uh, good job, Christopher McCory. You're the man. And I certainly hope that you make really great Mission Impossible movies because I already like the ones that you have made. The Usual Suspects is not streaming anywhere currently, but it is rentable from a variety of places, including from iTunes, which is where I found it. Christian, where'd you find it? Found on oh, iTunes. iTunes. There you go. It is not on Prime. It is not on Prime. That was a weird one. But hey, iTunes is basically the same thing. Just a different gigantic company. So, as Unreliable Narrators continues on its glorious track down the Cinema Drip Lane, we were considering a few different options. And I guess by we, I mean me because I'm curating, but I get Christian's input. There's a few options. And so, we will be going from 1995 only a little bit into the future, into the year 2000, as we look at a filmmaker we both like, Christopher Nolan, and his breakout success, Memento starring Guy Pierce. So Memento is streaming in a couple of places. It is on Canopy, shout out to the public library system, as well as Hoopla, if either of those are available to you. You can also find it for free with ads on Tubi TV and Pluto TV, among a couple other places. Or, of course, it is rentable. Christian, have you seen Memento before? I have seen Memento before. I saw it with my roommates. There you go. I am looking forward to watching it again. It's been a few years, but I was a really big fan when I watched it in one of my film classes in college. You should watch it with your roommate. I will watch it with Maddie. I'll get her thoughts. If you have reached that this point in the episode, as always, Christian and I, thank you so much for your support. We really enjoy putting these shows together for you, and it means a lot that there are good people out there listening. So thank you for listening along with us. There are a few things that you can do to support the podcast, which we would really appreciate. You can leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps us reach new listeners there. You can also feel free to share the episodes when you listen to them. Mention them to a friend, perhaps. Or engage with us on Twitter, which would be awesome. We're tweeting about new episodes as they come and as they drop, and we'll hopefully get a chance to engage with y'all more in the future there. You can also drop us a line and give us some feedback at cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. And hey, Braxton Cody, who sent us some feedback, was featured on last week's episode. So I'm not making any promises here, but you could be next. But any way that you choose to support us beyond just listening would be more than enough. So thank you very much if you do any of those things listed. Christian, any final thoughts for the folks at home? Oh, follow us on Letterboxd. Almost forgot at that time. Follow us on Letterboxd, rating and reviewing. We love it. Anyway, Christian, any final thoughts for the folks listening at home? Yeah, Oscar nominations come out on Monday, I think. And uh, I am so excited. I still have, I'm still missing a couple of films. Like I still haven't seen Promising Young Woman or The Father in terms of, or, or News of the World in terms of things that are up there. But I've seen a good portion and I'm, I'm just interested. I'm interested in where the convo is going to go for these films. The nominations will be announced on the 15th. So do do get ready, folks. That Monday morning, it's coming. I also am very behind on watching Oscar-adjacent movies for this year and soon-to-be-nominated movies, so I'll have some catching up to do, and you can join with me in that if you so wish. As always, he's Christian, I'm Scott, and this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast. <laughs>